Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Good to have you tuning in again today. Today we continue our walk through the minor prophets of the Old Testament. I hope you're ready for some more teaching, because if you missed last week, you're going to want to go back and listen as I did an introduction. And uh, we also then uh, focused on our first book, which was Hosea. Now, one of the things I need to remind you as we continue through these minor prophets is that we have to recognize that we live in a different time and a different situation than the prophets did. Um, that's very important because regardless of the similarities that we may see as we uh, uh, read these texts, sometimes, you know, we'll go, well, you know, I think this is addressed to us. Well, it's, it's not. Um, we can't treat these texts like they're simply addressed to us. Instead, um, I suggested that we look at these texts as a mirror. So remember that, um, that uh, it reflects back to us things that we need to see, such as maybe our sin that we might not be aware of. And it's also inviting us always, constantly, to repent and to change. So uh, now the minor prophets can be very hard to understand, but like I told you last week, they're not called minor because they're unimportant, but because they're short. To which, to be honest, I kind of like it because you, you know, you, they get into it, they state the case, and they wrap it up. And I'm sure some of you probably say, hey, Adri, I wish your sermons were more minor as well, but we won't get there today. Anyway, let's get busy. So in this ser series, we ask five simple questions. Um, who wrote the book? Where are we in history? Why is this book so important? Um, what is the main message and how do we apply it to our lives? Five questions for every book. Now, let's jump into an intense and often overwhelming book, the book of Joel. So the first question, obviously, is who wrote the book? The Bible clearly claims that Joel is the author and there's nothing more to add. I just got to say that, you know, the text states uh, the word of the Lord came to Joel and uh, his name means Yahweh is God. Now, we know nothing of Joel except that he was the son of uh, Pethuel. Again, that's there in the scriptures, and uh, we know nothing of his dad. <laughs> so what we do know is that Joel's message is short, and there's these sparse references um, uh, in other places of scripture. So he preached to the people of Judah and expressed a, a, a great deal of interest in Jerusalem. He also made several comments on the priests, the temple, which indicates that he has some sort of familiarity with the, uh, the, the, the center of worship in Judah at that time. So where are we in history? And again, scholars have a very hard time pegging Joel with some accurate certainty um, with any specific area. But one of the things that we do know is that Joel is quoted by two other prophets, Amos and Isaiah. Joel 3.16 is quoted in Amos 1 verse 2. Uh, Joel 3.18 is quoted in Amos 9.13. And Joel 1.15 is actually quoted word for word in Isaiah 13.6. So the dating of the book actually now becomes a little difficult because Joel really gave no indication of when he was writing during this time period. Um, he actually refrains from mentioning any current ruling kings. Now that's not unusual. Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum... Habakkuk, they all did the same thing. But uh, there is an argument for dating uh, that I actually think is quite compelling uh, with Joel and gives us a reason why he probably left out 
the name of any uh, ruler. And um, I think what we can do is we can take a look at this book and uh, I, Joel explains this omission really by suggesting uh, that the prophecy occurred in um, the aftermath of Judah's only ruling queen, and her name was uh, Athaliah. Uh, she had a grandson. His name was Joash. Uh, Joash was to succeed her after she died. Um, and, but when she died, Joash was way too young to actually rule. So they had a priest who stepped in. His name was uh, Jehoiada, and he ruled in his place until Joash came of age. Uh, so it's quite possible, if we're looking to date this, that uh, Joel prophesied during this caretaking period. And it, then it makes perfect sense why he doesn't really mention a king, because there was no real king sitting on the throne at that time. He mentions priests, he talks about temple rituals and nations, Phoenicia, Philista, uh, Egypt, Edom. Um, these were all prominent nations in the late 9th century B.C., and so if you're going to try to uh, pick a date, most scholars are going to say it's approximately 835 B.C. Um, uh, in that area, which is after Solomon and before the exile. So Joel was considered probably one of the earliest prophets uh, on the scene. Uh, he may have been a contemporary or even a student of the prophet Elisha. Uh, one scholar says, uh, you know, the reason that we even now take that book Joel and place it between Hosea and Amos is because of the similarity of ideas rather than any chronological order. So that's why it's in our Bible where you find it. So we had Hosea, Joel, and then the next week we're going to look at Amos. So why is this book so important? There are another, uh, a number of key themes that are presented throughout this book. First and foremost, there's, there's repentance and forgiveness. And it's a call to repentance that actually undergirds throughout uh, this entire book. Getting right with God. Secondly, there's this eschatological theme. Now, eschatology is a uh, part of theology that's concerned with the final events of history. Or it's the ultimate destiny of humanity, if you want to put it that way. Uh, we frequently call it the end times. And so Joel gives some of the most striking and actually very specific details of all of Scripture of this thing that he calls the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is interesting because th those days are cloaked in darkness, armies that conquer like consuming fire, the moon turning to blood. Uh, really, the day of the Lord is the ultimate judgment time. And it, it still is in the future for us today, especially if we take some time when we look at 2 Thessalonians 2.2 and 2 Peter 3.10. It's a day that's coming. And uh, there's a, also another segment of this book, the prophetic segment. Um, if you read in, in chapter 2, verse 28, the outpouring of God's Spirit was filled at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 in our New Testament. And so Peter quotes this passage, and uh, Joel's prophecy was fulfilled as the Holy Spirit would indwell all who trust in Christ. So that, again, this fulfillment of prophecy is there. Finally, there's also hope. 
And uh, thank goodness for that, because Joel points to a time where uh, Jerusalem will never be invaded ever again. Um, and the latter part of Joel points to the hope that all Christians have, that the, the coming of Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom, uh, the end times. So th- what's the main message? Again, there's some disagreement with the scholars and how they approach this book. I'm going to try to approach it to the best of my ability. The theme of Joel is if the nation will repent and return to God, God then will restore his relationship with her and bless her. Um, There are four sections in this book, and the first one is this national call to repentance. And Joel was writing during a time where a lot of things had gone very wrong in Israel. They had some bad leaders. They had suffered through a national plague. Uh, There was civil unrest. There was economic problems. And Joel writes to diagnose the problem, and he tells the people, hey, look, at it's not all of these things. There's only one problem. The one problem is, is that you wandered away from God. And so he opens his book with a, a description of a locust invasion, which is actually awe-inspiring. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. And it's like a fire going through stubble, basically, is what we have. And so you had the land that probably looked like the Garden of Eden before the locusts came, and now it's like this desert wasteland behind them. Uh, people are filled with fear as these insects that he's talking about destroy everything. And he even describes that even the moon and the sun and the stars grow dark. So not only is the land wasted for the farmers, but also for the winemakers uh, also, for the offerings of the Lord, to the Lord are cut off. The priests couldn't do their job because there was no way to do that. And so the priests mourned. Uh, the drunkards mourned. Uh, even the cattle are perplexed in, in, in this passage. So Joel's, rea- Joel's reaction to the plague of locusts is, is, is to speak into all. It's calling everybody into this national fast, a, a public day of prayer and confession before God. Why? Because... They turn their back on him. And some of the Joel's language seems to suggest that there's another event, that of an army that's invading from the north. Uh, some scholars believe that Joel is saying that, you know, unless Israel wakes up, God is going to send the armies of Babylon into Israel like a wh- horde of locusts. Um, but I have to say this. Whether the threat is really nature or man, the reaction should be the same. And the reaction that Joel is trying to get the people to give is this national repentance. The rending of hearts, fasting, weeping, mourning, and ultimately turning back to God. Um, the second section that, that's in there is the, what I call the turning point. And, and in Joel 2.18, we read that the Lord will be jealous for his land and pity his people. And so you have to ask the question, well, when? Well, The answer is when they humble themselves, when they fast, when they weep, when they mourn, when they cry out to God. And it's he's not talking about complaining, you know, the hey God, we don't deserve this judgment, but acknowledging God's justice and appealing to God's mercy. And um, the third section is the restoration section, and uh, where it says, "I'll repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other locust and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you." You will have plenty to eat until you are full. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you and never again will my people be shamed. It's in this section that Joel's prophecy 
of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit also takes place. So God's going to repay them uh, for, for this loss. But there's also this, this blessing. And afterwards, I'll pour out my spirit on all people, and your sons and daughters will po- prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And so the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh as a result of repentance and obedience, which we see actually played out in Acts chapter 2. And so, you know, again, we can't change the past, but, with, but in Jesus, it, we, and, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, God restores to us uh, what would have been had we not allowed sin and entrance. So there's this restoration, there's this promise of the Spirit of God to fall upon people. And then the final section, there's actually three valleys that Joel talks about. The Valley of Judgment. Uh, Joel chapter 3, he's no longer calling Israel to repentance, but now he's calling the nations, the nations of the world, to the Valley of Judgment. Again, eschatological, it refers to the end times. And according to Peter in Acts chapter 2, the end times began at Pentecost. Just saying. Just throwing that out there. More to talk about. Second is the Valley of Decision. And again, this is not a place where people... Uh, have any further opportunity to decide to follow God, but it's the place where God will pronounce his judgment against sinners. This is not a good place to be, all right? But the Lord uh, is the hope and the strength of his own people, and in that great day, and Joel sees beyond that, uh, even to the new Jerusalem, which leads up to the valley, the third valley of the acacia trees. And so this, the book ends in a complete reversal. The reversal of the judgments, which with he started first. The days that the locusts have eaten are, are now restored. There's new wine dripping from the vines. The, the cattle are full. The rivers flow. And a fountain flows from the house of the Lord to the valley of the acacia tree. And um, again, this idea that blessings flow from the house of God to Jerusalem. And nothing will be compared to what God has in store for his own people in the new Jerusalem at the end of time. So that's everything in a nutshell. So the biggest question then is, how do I apply all this to my life? And that's where I want to spend everything on. And I think it's here in the first scene of this total, absolute devastation that, that we begin to make our application. I, um, we'd be fools to do, as some have done, and say that specific natural disasters are the judgment of God. We would also be fools not to acknowledge that God is sovereign. In other words, he is in control and he uses natural disasters and other devastating experiences to get our attention. That's one of those who. So let me say it this way. God uses pain in our life to pursue us, to get our attention. We learned that last week with the story of Hosea and Gomer. Now, most of us can't relate to what's happening here in Joel as he talks about this massive locust plague. Now, a locust is more than just a a, a grasshopper. Now, here in our prairies, we see grasshoppers. Oh, they're nice. And every once in a while, um, you see hordes of grasshoppers. Well, um, the hordes of grasshoppers are not good things, but they're not locusts. You see, locusts are, are, are grasshoppers, but I say they're grasshoppers with unusual superpowers, all right? In North America, there was only one type of locust uh, found, and it was called the Rocky Mountain locust. So I did my homework, and it says that when these creatures were triggered, um, usually by some sort of overcrowding within themselves, they literally would transform themselves into a menace. Uh, 
And so I did some more digging, and I wanted to know what were the effects on the prairies because of the locusts, right? And history tells us in 1873 there, were, there was a minor invasion into the area north of Winnipeg. Go figure that. But somehow that invasion of locusts was confined, but, ac- but according to uh, the Manitoba Free Press of July 25, 1874, um, they did manage to lay their eggs that would hatch that following spring. So in 1874, two swarms of locusts hit Manitoba. The first descended upon Manitoba. They said it came up from Minnesota, and it destroyed most of the crops along the way as far north as Winnipeg. Then they said also in 1874, another swarm came from the west, and it devastated the entire western limit of the province to the Red River. So, you know, from the Red River all the way west. And... uh, um, I, f- I find that fascinating because it was recorded that this all took place in 1874. So you think about it, millions if not billions of individual insects acting as groups descended upon settlers' fields across the prairies in both Canada and the U.S. And they devoured crops like with a machine-like efficiency. Um, the sounds of their swarms uh, uh, are said to be terrifying. Witnesses said that within a few weeks there was literally nothing living plant-wise. And in some cases, they would even eat the bark off the trees, leaving behind a wasteland that probably looked like a nuclear holocaust today. Um, Some reports said that as locusts got more desperate for food, they swarmed into houses, eating food, eating clothes, eating fabric. It's kind of like junior high boys at a pizza party. They left nothing behind. And so Joel uses this locust plague as both an illustration of Israel's sin as well as a warning of God's future judgment of their sin. So you think about the locust plague like this. The devastating power of sin is total. It gradually destroys everything in its path, but it destroys it. And that's what sin does, right? Starts small and just keeps going until everything is destroyed. But the law that, the, that God gave the Israelites, the law is life. Uh, his commandments and his rule in their lives when they obeyed, remember God's love language is obedience, when they, are, when they obeyed, they, the, their lives were flourishing. And, and we see this illustrated even in the creation account. When God created the earth, um, it, it began what? It was dark, it was, it was shapeless, it was chao- a chaotic mass. And then in Genesis 1-2, uh, it says that God's word then spoke into that chaos and when his word spoke into that chaos it brought life it brought beauty it brought order out of it and this shows that that God's word what it does when it enters our lives right when God's word enters our lives it brings in order it brings in beauty sin by contrast unravels creation and it plunges our lives back into darkness like that nuclear holocaust and and God's judgment in Scripture often illustrate that. So when you think about it, sin numbs you until it destroys you. Whether it's pornography, jealousy, envy, greed, anger, pride, you know, doing things your way instead of his way, and it may feel good in the moment, but it really rots our soul. And so the locust plague is an illustration, but it's also a warning. It's a warning of the coming judgment. And what we see in all of this is an illustration of what theologians call the passive and active dimensions of the wrath of God. Now, we don't like to talk about the wrath of God, but we're in the minor prophets. I have to, you know. 
And, and, you know, how does the active and the passive wrath of God work together? Well, let me put it this way. The passive wrath of God is when God allows us to suffer the natural consequences of our sin. Think about that. You steal, you get caught, you do time, all right? Natural consequences of sin. The act of wrath of God is the direct form of judgment from heaven. And, and here's the thing. The act of wrath of God, this direct form, is actually just an extension of or an affirmation of the passive wrath. In his act of wrath, God affirms and extends what we have already chosen for ourselves. Go to Genesis again. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. And, and we know that God casts him, them out of his presence. That's the active part, right? Immediate response. But remember, prior up to that, Adam and Eve had already chosen, after they sinned, they have already chosen um, to, to hide from God's presence. They chose to cover themselves. They, they felt ashamed. They, they knew they were naked. And they even had the opportunity to come clean when God you know, was doing that cosmic hide-and-seek and looking for them. But what happened? They didn't. And they got caught. And then they participated in this blame game. And the effects of the fall began to affect them until what? So you had this passive wrath until the active, until they were expelled from the garden. Look at the, the uh, exodus with the plagues and, and the Jews wanting to leave Egypt. And scripture says that uh, God's judgment on Pharaoh was to harden his heart so that he wouldn't believe. Well, you know, some people go, well, that, was that the active wrath of God? Well, we have to remember that Pharaoh hardened his own heart several times before that, right? Several times before that. He wasn't going to let his, uh, the Israelites go. And so basically, it's, it's this fruition of telling God to get out of your life. We allow sin in. We pay um, consequences, right, for our sins. But that act of part is just saying to God, hey, just get out of my life. And he does. And, and there's, there's a consequence to it. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, in the end, we either say to God, thy will be done, or he says to us, thy will be done. He also said this. He said, sin is like a cancer. It never stops growing, like locusts, right? And we live forever. And there's a lot of things that wouldn't be worth worrying about if they only grew in us for 70 or 80 years. But what does it look like for that temper and jealousy to grow in you unabated for a million years? Hell is precisely the technical term for what it would be. Interesting description of hell and how, and how sin eats away at us. So what we see here, first of all, is that God doesn't destroy Sin destroys. God is trying to let us see where sin is taking us before it's too late. And a lot of us wonder how the, you know, the threats of judgment that we see throughout all the minor prophets, how is that consistent with God's love? You know, God, how can God be loved? Look, read this. Well, listen, remember last week we started with one of the most mind-bending illustrations of God's love. And that is Hosea's faithfulness, his persistent love to a notoriously unfaithful life and how God, wife. And how God said, look at what you see here on earth is is my relationship with you. And any experience of, of the painful consequences of our sin um, before 
it's too late. Is God in mercy? It's God in, in love trying to wake us up. Don't touch the stove. But you touch the stove, you're going to get burnt, right? It wakes you up. He's not trying to pay us back. What God is doing is when sin comes in and we suffer the effects of that, he's actually letting us see it, letting us experience it, and he wants to bring us back. So maybe you feel like locusts are eating every part of you today. Maybe you're trying to save money, but things keep breaking down. You ever been there, right? You know, or you're trying to do better in your marriage, right? But new issues of conflict just keep cropping up. Uh, maybe you're trying new strategies to be happy, but it always feels like it's only skin deep, right? It's a pseudo-happiness. You know, you're, maybe you, you have to try to find uh, an escape from, from real life to be happy. And so what do we do? We do shopping. We do TV. Maybe it's porn. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's getting drunk. Maybe it's getting high. You know, that means then if we have to do that, that, that version that something is not right inside. Maybe something is even rotten inside. And maybe God's just trying to get, like, wake you up, right? You know, no new strategy is going to fix you. But that's what we do. We try to do a new strategy. Um, and, and the problem is, is that we, you know, we're trying to fix the wrong source. You know, our problem is not found in this horizontal. Our problem is with the vertical, right? There are always going to be more locusts than you have solutions. And I think we've got to stop looking for solutions in our world um, uh, and, uh, in, in order for God to bring us to our senses. He, he really has to bring us to the end of ourselves. And for some of us, I think he's been calling out to us for years. He's been trying to get our attention, but we haven't been ready to listen because we haven't maybe come to an end of ourselves yet. We have our own little secret things that we hold on to. But in order for God to make us new, he's got to rip out the old. Uh, so don't be surprised if your world keeps crumbling. It sounds harsh, doesn't it? You know, God has blessed our church with growth over the years, and we've seen many people come and re-explore this whole God thing. And, and here's what I've noticed. There are some people who come back, and, and, and really, they, they, they come back to church, but they really don't want real change. They, they want maybe God to fix what's wrong in an area, right? Let's slap a new moral coat of paint on our life and scrub away the rust. That's, that's really all we want. But here's the thing. God just doesn't want us to... He doesn't want to help us polish up the old. He wants to make us into a new person, a new creation. Not to turn over a new leaf, but rather he wants us to have a new life. Again, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he, he basically writes that, you know, many people come to God because they, they realize that their houses are broken down and so we need God to fix it, right? That's what we do. Hey, God, I need you to fix this. And at first we understand maybe what God is doing, but then, you know, we have him fixing the drains and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And, and you knew those jobs <laughs> needed to be done, um, and so you're not surprised by that. But then he starts knocking the house in a way that maybe hurts you, <laughs> if I could put it that way, that, that doesn't make sense to you. And you begin to wonder, what on earth is God up to? What is he doing? And the explanation is that he's building maybe a quite different house than from what you thought of. He's putting up a new wall here. He's putting an extra floor there. He's making a courtyard of some sort here. And you thought you're, you're going to have this nice, decent little cottage, but he's building a palace, and he actually intends to come and live in it himself. And you and I would be happy with just a little changes, but God has so much more for us. 
The shag carpet may not bother you, but God wants to replace it. And so when we think about it, God has so much more for you and I than we have for ourselves. And this is why I think he allows the locusts in our lives to wake us up. So again, where is this happening for you? You know, at the sound of my voice, is, is there something in your life that maybe you're asking God to, to take away, but you maybe should realize that instead of that God is really trying to send you a warning through it, maybe that's just the symptom of something deeper that he wants to change. So what does God want? You know, we read in uh, Joel 12 and 13, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. I think this is the kind of repentance, you know, God is calling for. It's a repentance that is calling um, to us out of love. Look at the words that he uses. All your heart. He talks about fasting, weeping, mourning, rend, or tear. Tear your hearts, not your garments. Inside, not the outside. And so he's describing repentance that comes from a broken heart. Not just a bent will, but a heart that is heartbroken over what it is sin did in our relationship to God. And really, that's the only kind of repentance that really works. That's the only real change that's going to happen. So let me get back to my confessions of a pastor. I think what bothers me about my sin is at times it has caused painful circumstances. It's made me feel guilty and ashamed. And so what do I do? I, I try to make resolutions, right? I, I, I try to make these resolutions to change. I try to control it myself, and it's always short-lived. But in those areas of my heart, where I've acknowledged and maybe have actually been broken over how I've hurt God. And it's in those areas of repentance that really has changed me. And the reason some of us can't repent effectively, effectively, and I throw this out there, is that maybe we really don't love God. Yeah, I just said that. We still have it, the control. Let me explain a little bit more. And this is actually where the connection of fasting comes in. You know, we're here in Lent. And, uh, you know, some people look at fasting and they, they treat it like looking at God's favor. You know, it's almost like a way of inflicting sort of like some sort of mild punishment on ourselves, right? Um, but that goes against everything that the gospel teaches. You know, I, the gospel teaches that forgiveness is free. It's a gift, right? And uh, we don't have to do anything else like that. But Fasting for the Christian is really an expression of loving God. And it's an expression of us longing for God. Um, We don't fast in order to gain favor with God, like some religions do, but as a grateful response to the favor that God has already given us in Jesus Christ. You know, when we fast, we should be saying stuff like, God, I I need your power in my life. This really should be our prayer. God, I need your power in my family. God, I need your power in our church. And, and I'm, I'm heartbroken if I don't have it. You know, things are not okay 
It's that openness, it's that transparency. And what I need is not a better marriage or a little bit more financial help or a new boss for, or, or for this person just to you know, leave me alone. What I need, God, is your presence and I need your power in the center of my life. And I, I want that even more than food. That's fasting. Or we cry out and we say to God, I'm not okay with my kids not knowing Jesus. I want that more than anything else. Or maybe what we say as a church, it's not okay with the amount of people in our community who don't know Jesus and the amount of families in our church who are splitting up or the injustice that still affects people, not only just in our community, the tragic amount of people in our world who still even haven't even heard about Jesus. And so God, I want your presence. I want your power in those things in my life more than food. And so what what do we do? We fast, we abstain from eating, and we pray. And we just become transparent. We rend our hearts before God. And God's presence and his power, it flows through a repentance that grows out of a love for him. Which may make us ask the question, well, how do we learn to have these feelings again? (laughs) Remember that song by the Righteous Brothers? You... Lost that loving feeling. Yeah, okay, I, whatever. Oh, that loving feeling. I think some of you remember that. Well, how do you fix that? How do you fix that? In a culture that's so saturated with our feelings, how do we get back to being that intimate and that caring with God? And I think, you know, we start with God's love. We started with jo- Hosea, Right? And, and that's why I think Hosea actually comes first in the, in the, in the Minor Prophets. I don't think it's accidental. You, you start with God's love, the, that his love um, is demonstrated, how he comes faithfully for us again and again and again. And Joel says for it himself, uh, he says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. You think about that love. Grasping the love of God for us produces love for God in us. Do you hear that? Grasping the love of God for us produces the love of God in us. And in and, and 1 John 4, 9, we read that if we, you know, we love because he first loved us. Everything in the Christian life grows out of our knowledge of God's love. It's this. Right? And you can only learn to repent of your sin the more you immerse yourself in the free and gracious love of God. He will never let you go. There's nothing, we learned last week, there's nothing that you can do. He still pursues you. He still loves you. Look how he responds to Joel in chapter 2. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offering, and drink offerings for the Lord your God. We tend to to read this as like, who knows if God will do this. But This is actually really a rhetorical question here. Um, And you can see from verses 12 that God is the speaker. So we know God is the speaker. It's a rhetorical question. And here's what he promises, that if we return and repent, God will relent. Which is mercy. And then he will bless, which is grace. You know, um, many of you are familiar with Les Mis, right? Jean Valjean. Uh, he steals the valuable silverware from the priest. And, of course, the priest doesn't call the cops. doesn't really have a chance to. But rather, the police show up at the door of the church. And 
They show up with Valjean and all the stolen items, and the priest, interesting enough, tells the police that he gave it to Valjean. That's mercy. Mercy is withholding from us wrath that we do deserve. And so after the police leave, the priest gives Valjean back all the items and more, right? He gave him the candlesticks. And that's grace. And grace is God pouring out on us goodness that we don't deserve. And again, if you're aware of the story, that simple act, that grace, causes Valjean to become repentant and eventually an honorable, dignified man. It's that repent that sticks out to me in this story. And God not only wants to, to shield his wrath from you and me, he wants to return blessing and prosperity to our life. And I'm not saying we treat God like a big piñata, right? And Yay! I'm not talking about that. But look what Joel has to say in, in 2.19. The re- Lord replied to them, I'm sending you grain, new wine, olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully, and never again will I make you the object of scorn to the nations. That means new blessings. God will actually pour out his blessings on us. It's, it's, it's like putting Matthew 6.33 in action. We're familiar with that. Put God first in everything, and all these things will be added unto you. You know, um, this verse points to something else as well. It, it says that you will be satisfied. This is interesting. This is the cool aspect. You will be satisfied. It points to contentment. Think about it. Which, which is a greater blessing? If, you know, for God to dump stuff on your life, you know, and I use the word stuff loosely, or to enable you to be happy with what he has given you. And I think contentment is one of the greatest heavenly gifts, right? You know, and I think, isn't contentment what we're always trying to teach our kids when they're young? You don't need every new version of every new toy to be happy. Happiness with your stuff has more to do with your character than your possessions. Contentment is a character quality. It's not a condition. And sometimes God will bless you with things, Without question. Sometimes he'll give you a greater contentment, though, in the things that you already have. Sometimes God will bless you by taking away the pain. And sometimes he'll give you joy and peace within the pain. Or he'll bless you by fixing your marriage. Or maybe he'll give you peace that passes all understanding in the midst of a most painful marriage. So Joel goes on in in what I would say is one of the best verses in the Old Testament, uh, 2.25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. What we see here is this retroactive restoration. God will go back and make up for he'll go back and make up in your life what sin has destroyed. And, you know, has there ever been another expression of grace like this? How much God wants to to love and bless us. It, It says that he will replace, he will restore. He'll make up what sin has destroyed in our lives, relationally, financially, emotionally. And sometimes you and I will experience that on earth, but there are other aspects. Maybe we won't experience it until we get into eternity. But it's this restoration you know, a good example of this could be Job, who lost everything. He lost his fortune, his family, his health. Um, 
He wasn't suffering for sin. He was just suffering, right? But in the end, what he lost was restored to him seven times. So this is not out of God's thought box. You know, so I have to ask you, what has sin destroyed in your life? Has, destroy, has divorce destroyed your, your heart or your family? You know, have you made decisions that you think, you know, messed up your life beyond repair? The Lord says, return to me and I will restore the years the locust have eaten. Look at your life is not over at all. If you return to God, the rendering of our heart, he promises that all that you went through won't be swallowed up uh, in darkness. It will be swallowed up in goodness. That there will be a joy that will never end. Another promise found here is in 228. Afterwards, I'll pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see vision. And even my servants, both men and women, I'll pour my spirit on in those days. This is the passage that we read when we celebrate the, the birth of the church on Pentecost Sunday. Um, and again, Pentecost represents the beginning of that great work of God, the infilling of the Holy Spirit upon believers. He, it's here Peter cites this verse in Acts chapter 2 as being uh, fulfilled by the coming of the Holy Spirit. You know, he, he's saying, look, at this is God's presence in us. And the Spirit's presence would be better to us than any other earthly blessing. The Spirit is more life-giving than, than money. It's, it's more secure than good health. It's more constant than, than great relationships. This is the Spirit of God infused in us. And imagine going to heaven, you know, when, when we get there, um, having talks with Old Testament saints like, you know, hey, Moses, what was it like crossing the Red Sea? And, you know, hey, what was it like destroying the prophets of Baal? Or, you know, whatever other miracle that took place amongst great people. And can you imagine them stopping and looking at you and go, what was it like to have the Holy Spirit living inside of you? Right? And, and, and think about that. If you're a believer, you have the very Spirit of God that, that created the world, that raised Jesus from the dead in you. Right now, take a moment and just look at the person you're sitting next to. Now, if they're a Christian, they actually have the actual Spirit of God in them. Now, you may be tempted to say, well, they don't look like it. Well, you don't look like it either, but I'm just saying. But you, when you think about it, the, the creator of the galaxies... The creator of the galaxy that loved that person enough, loved you enough to fuse himself into us permanently. And he's got a job for us. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Peter tells us in, in Acts that this points to the empowerment of the Spirit in the church for mission. You go back to Acts 1.8 where Jesus is talking and he says that when we receive the Holy Spirit that he would be our power for mission. That you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That you will be my witnesses. And that's the way that you know that the Holy Spirit is in you. It's not that you feel all serene at night, but that you are a witness. That you are a truth teller. That you cannot shut up about it. Right? And, and, and when you've been going through all that Joel has promised in chapter 2, you're going to have to have something to say coming out of it. Um, and, and it's just like falling in love, right? 
when you fall in love, you annoy the heck out of everybody else because you're talking about your new friend. You know what I'm saying? You just can't help it because you're in love, right? You want to talk about your new friend. You have to tell somebody. Well, how about this? Everybody I've known, if they've ever remodeled their house, they have people over for dinner. Why do you have people over for dinner after you remodel? Because you want them to see it, right? And the, you, you, know, you want people to see just how awesome your new addition or whatever it is has done. And so when God restores you, you are going to want to tell somebody. And God just doesn't revive and restore you so that you feel better on the inside. He wants some witnesses. And the Holy Spirit comes on you, and he helps you with that. And the book of Joel opened up with God telling Joel in chapter 1, verse 3, tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Is this happening? Is God's Spirit on this church? Are you telling your friends? Are we telling our kids? These are all the things that God wants to give us. Mercy, grace, blessing, restoration, presence, power for witness. And maybe you're sort of still a little sidetracked. What happened to all that wrath God had against our sin? Well, and I think that's a good question. Because throughout the book, Joel keeps talking about that coming of the day of the Lord where God will pour out his judgment on sin. And on that day, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And, and, and there, the wrath of God will be poured out on sin in the final judgment. And I think there's that vivid picture there that is serve as a reminder to awaken us from our spiritual stupor. You know, do you ever struggle with the feeling of being complacent, especially in our relationship with God? You know, a, a strong dose of uh, apocalyptic imagery, like what we find here in Joel, might just do the trick to opening our eyes to the necessity of faithfully following after God every moment of our life. I love the fact that uh, the first sermon that is preached after the resurrection of Jesus was this text from Joel. And the message is this, is just ask. Ask, I'll give you the power and presence that you ask for. Just ask. And when you think of it, the absence of God's presence and power and blessing from our lives or even our church really has nothing to do with his unwillingness. It's with our own sin. Isaiah 59 says, Surely I, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. You know, we can say that many things are wrong in our lives, or in the church, or in our community, or in our nation. But in reality, there's only one thing that's wrong. We've fallen away from God. And we no longer love and we no longer pursue him. And, and, and so in writing this message, I have to ask you the question, how badly do we want the presence of God? How badly do you want the presence of God? And I wonder if the answer is as seriously as we take sin and as severely as we hunger for God's presence. Joel tells us that in all of our hopelessness, God is still God. Remember that. That Yahweh is God. And here's another truth that we have to nail down. 
You know, last week we said that God loves you. and Today we say God is God and there is no other. And in it is this place that we learn what it means to feel hope. Think about it. Hope in the midst of hopelessness. And, and Joel, this book, gives us reasons for hope. And maybe you feeling hopeless, but God promises to be compassionate. God promises to help. God promises to restore. God promises his presence. God promises his spirit. And God promises to save. And I believe that's what God wants to do with some of the shattered ruins of our lives. He wants to take those remains and fashion them into something meaningful in your life. Let him do that. You know, our humility is actually a sign of our hunger for God to move. Our desperation should be our dependence upon God. And my question again is, is that you today? Can we pray for you? Can I pray for you? Maybe you want to talk a little bit further. Why don't you just reach out and text the number on the screen or call the number. We'd love to talk to you and further. We'd love to even just pray with you. But I want to encourage all watching today, take some time, take the moment, and go before God and ask Him to reveal Himself to you. Let's pray. God, we come before you today and we ask for your forgiveness and we seek your direction and guidance. God, search us. Know our hearts today. See if there is any wicked way in us and cleanse us from every sin, Lord, and set us free is my prayer. The, the sacrifice that is acceptable to you, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken heart, one filled with regret and remorse for the sins that we have committed against you. We are a broken people, so have mercy. Have mercy on us, O oh God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me, as Isaiah said, of our iniquity. Cleanse us from our sin. Because we know our sin is ever before us, God. But against you and you alone do we sin. And so your desire, you desire truth in us. Therefore, teach us your wisdom. Let us hear joy. Let us hear gladness. Let the bones that have been crushed begin to rejoice, Lord, and create in us a clean heart, God. Put in a new and right spirit within us and don't cast us away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from us, but restore to us the joy of your salvation, God, and sustain us with a willing spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Soul Sanctuary, go into the world and work to bring forth new life. Dream dreams, pursue visions, and speak to all you know of God's goodness in your life. And may the God who breathed life into creation, may he be your delight. May Jesus Christ give hope to your dreaming. And may the Holy Spirit, your advocate, your supporter, may he set ablaze your hearts with a passion for peace. Go in peace, love and serve the Lord, and live the church. We'll see you next week.